Father, we're desperate for you to speak to us this morning by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. Uh, with the subject that we are going to be holding this morning, uh, we need to hear from you. And we need you uh, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to change, to look more like you. So we're expectant for you to do that. Pray that you would be with us during this time. Shape us, mold us, help us look more like you, Jesus. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do things athletically and I impress myself. Has that ever happened to you where you make a move? A couple weeks ago, I made a move on the basketball court and I couldn't believe I did it. I was like, that was amazing. The story I'm going to tell you was not that. Um, because about 12 years ago, my wife and I used to work for an athletic ministry to college athletes and pro athletes. And when we get together in conferences, we would find a gym after we were done with the speaking or whatever. And we would go play pickup basketball or we would play some types of game. We're playing pickup basketball and I'm in it. Like once you're done playing, you want to keep playing in some form or fashion. So anytime you get to play with former athletes, it's a ton, a ton of fun. So we're playing pickup basketball and I'm in help defense right here, pistols. You know what I'm saying? I'm right here. I'm ready to go. Johnny knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> and my teammate gets beat off the corner. So I come over and help defense like you should. And I'm, I'm going to swat this ball to the rafters. Like I'm ready to go. And so I jump up. I'm ready to block it. And the guy with the ball just pump fakes. And so I jump in the air and my body hits his body. And now all of a sudden, this is like happening in real time. Like I'm parallel to the ground, and I'm going, this is not good. It's like <laughs> slow motion. And I fall to the ground, and I put my hand out, and I land, and I, I, I break my wrist 40 degrees the wrong direction, and in three spots. And so I get up from the floor, and my wrist looks like a limp noodle. It just looks, it, it's, there's no bone sticking out, but I have a scar, and I've got three pins in there, and uh, so they rushed me. It was, not, it was not a great athletic moment for me in any way, shape, or form. But I'm all hopped up on adrenaline, so it doesn't really hurt. They take me to the local hospital. This happened to be in Ohio. I was not living in Ohio at the time. I go to the local hospital, and they're like, yeah, that, that needs surgery. That's an easy one. Uh, and so they're getting me ready, and some of the local people that work for the organization come over, and they're checking on me, and they're going, like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. They're going to do surgery, because what's my option? Like, I can go, well, no, I don't really want surgery. It's not broken. Like, I can be in denial, or I can be really scared of surgery, and I can go, I don't, I don't want to do this. I'll just learn to live with it kind of dislocated like this. But no, I need to move into surgery, because it's clearly broken. There's clearly a problem. But... What I did not know, because I did not have context, was all the local staff came and they're like, hey, let's not do surgery at this hospital. This is not, uh, this is, no, we'll take you somewhere else. I was like, I don't, sure, I don't want to come out with a mangled wrist. So they set me up, they know the Cincinnati Reds doctor, and so we drive down to Cincinnati and I get surgery and I'm fine and my wrist is great. But I was waiting for the right doctor. I didn't want to have the doctor or the surgeon that was at this hospital I initially came to. I had to go somewhere else. I was anticipating something was broken and I need something, somebody to fix it. I need somebody with the right tools and the right experience to be able to do that. So we're talking through Advent this four weeks. We're talking about peace on earth. And the word Advent is Latin for arrival. 
There should be some type of waiting expectation for us because things are broken in our world. Whether you follow Jesus or not, you see things aren't the way they should be. There's a fracture. There's a break. Something is not right, and we need an anticipation of someone to come and fix our problems. That's what the season of Advent is. As God's people in the Old Testament were waiting, they saw the brokenness of the world, and they're waiting for a Messiah to come and fix things, to make things right, to make things whole again, to give this peace or shalom that we've been talking about. And they believe, and we believe, it's found in the person of Jesus, that the Messiah does come, that we are remembering their expectation in Advent, and we're waiting for him to come again to make all things right once and for all. That's the idea of Advent and where we are in this idea of peace on earth. And we read and are continuing to read 2 Thessalonians 3.16, which again says, May the Lord of peace give, him, or give you peace at all times and in every way, that you can have wholeness, rightness at all times and in every way. We've been looking how we've been disconnected in this idea of peace. We've been disconnected with God because of our sin. We've been disconnected with one another because of sin. We've been disconnected with ourselves, and we've been disconnected with creation. Those are the four weeks we're covering. We talked about how we can be made right and whole again with God because of what Jesus does and how we can ask for forgiveness and confess our sins in week one. Last week, Charles unpacked what it means to be connected again with one another in forgiveness, how do we love one another because of what Jesus has done on the cross? Today, we're going to be talking about peace with self. How do we be connected again with ourselves? Because when Jesus comes, his arrival, it brings peace. It brings this shalom. It brings things back together as they're meant to be. And today, we're walking through what it does it look like to have peace with self. So let me ask you this. What are the areas that combat having peace with yourself, when you lay your head down at night and you don't feel right even with yourself, what are the things that are at work there? And sometimes some of us have fear, we have shame, we have anxiety, and it's like a monkey on our back. We cannot get it off. We cannot shake it. We can't do anything. We don't want to feel this way, but all of a sudden it rushes in and we're feeling anxious and we're feeling scared and we're feeling nervous, and then we don't like the way we're feeling. How do we deal with that? How do we unwind that? And what does Jesus do to give us a solution to that anxiety? That's where we're going to go today. And I'm pulling a lot of resources. If you're not familiar and you have um, issues with anxiety or fear around you, I am pulling a lot of my information this morning from CCEF. That stands for Christian Counseling Education Foundation. David Paulson, Ed Walsh, uh, Kirsten Saliva, like a lot, a lot of their work is what I am referencing here. And so if you're wanting to know more about this subject, they're out of Philadelphia. Paul Tripp came out of them. Um, they're a great, great resource, CCEF, if you have more questions about how to deal with this. Listen to what David Paulson says when talking about anxiety. He says, do you want to hear a good description of what happens with anxiety? It says, a man who has no control over his spirit is like a city broken into and without walls. That's Proverbs 25, 28. Do you, uh, do you get a grip when barbarians, how do you get a grip when barbarians are rioting the streets of your mind? 
Terrorist attackers, gangs of criminals, suicide bombers, cities invaded, fires everywhere, a lion in the street, chaos. Your mind loses its grip. Fear and anxiety have taken over. Nothing is safe or uncertain. Could there be a more pressing thing to talk about in our culture today than dealing with anxiety? I read a stat this last week talking about loneliness and this idea of feeling lonely. Listen to what this said. It said 19% of boomers, those are, um, they were born from 1946 to 1964, uh, report feeling lonely for at least some part of their day. 19% of boomers. For Gen X, that's those born from 1965 to 1980, this number rises to 33%. Yet for millennials, those born from 1981 to 1995, it reaches a staggering 46% percent of people feel lonely throughout their day. I shared this stat a couple of months ago in a sermon, but anxiety disorders in the U.S. affected over 5% of our adult population in 2008. Over 5% of the adult population said they felt anxiety. Then the smartphone comes out. We have a global pandemic. Right now, the stats this year are that anxiety disorders in the U.S. are affecting over 18% of adults. It's moved from 5% to 18%, affecting over 40 million adults in the U.S. That would say, I deal with anxiety, with anxious thoughts inside of me. So wherever you are, maybe you don't deal with this and you're going, well, I don't need to check out. But somebody you know deals with anxiety and fear and shame. How do we talk about this? How do we get solution for ourselves with this? And how do we offer a solution to our friends and our neighbors that are dealing with this. Many times, anxiety is birthed in our trauma. And trauma means that your world has been particularly unsafe. It was unsafe in the past, and it still feels unsafe now. When Christians are brave enough to look at their trauma and admit that they feel anxious because it takes bravery to say, I have anxiety and I'm struggling with it, especially in the church. Because what happens in this community often is when you finally take the courage to step out and say, I'm really dealing with some anxious thoughts here. Usually the response, which is well-meaning for people, but usually the response you're going to get back in the church is, you know what? God is in control. You need to trust God. God is good. And all of those statements are true, but they're not always helpful in the moment when somebody is sharing their feelings of anxiety with you. Because often it feels like, well, if I'm a Christian and I'm dealing with anxiety or anxious thoughts, and I know that that is true in the Bible, that God's good, he's in control, I should trust him, then why do I still feel this way? And why can't I shake it? And then when somebody comes back to you saying, just trust God more, you feel even worse because you feel like you're failing as a Christian because you know those truths are true because they're found in the Bible and they're solid and they're right, but you cannot shake this feeling. And then so you feel like a worse Christian and then you feel like, well, I'm not going to share any with anybody and I'm anxious anymore. If that's the response, it just makes me feel worse. And then you feel like you're on an island alone dealing with this issue. We need to figure out how we can deal with this better and what does Jesus have to offer for us in a solution. So here's what I want to do this morning. First, I want us to look at a story in the Bible. If you have your Bible, you can open it up on your phone or in real 
paper. Um, it'll also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but I would encourage you to follow along. We're going to be looking at a story in 2 Kings chapter 6 that hopefully will give us some answers to some of these issues. And so we're going to look at that briefly and unpack it. And then the second part of what we're going to do is I'm going to bring up Elizabeth Ford, and she's going to sit up here with me, and we're going to have a conversation about uh, her journey with this subject, with anxiety, where she's seen um, life and hope in the midst of her journey, which I think is going to be really, really helpful for this conversation for us. So 2 Kings chapter 6, let's look at the text this morning together. This is what it says. I'm going to read some of the passage and then we'll stop and we'll unpack it and give it context and then we'll keep reading and we'll go back and forth for uh, quite a few verses in 2 Kings chapter 6. It says this, starting in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. That's Elijah, just so you guys know. He says, beware, do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the uh, place about which the man of God told him. He used this to warn him so that he saved himself more than once or twice. Verse 11, and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who is, uh, who of us is for the king of Israel, he's thinking there's a mole kind of going on here. Who, who, who's ratting us out? Who's telling us the plans of where we're going to attack? Verse 12. And so one of his servants said, none of us, my Lord or king, but Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is, that I might send and seize him. It was told him, behold, Dunneth. Verse 14, so then he sent the horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Let's stop there just to get some context again for what's going on here. So the Syrian army is against Israel. They've been warring with each other. Israel, they are God's people because God has called them out in the story of the Old Testament. So there's a battle between the uh, Israel army, God's people, and the Syrian army. And the Syrians keep going to attack the Israel army, and they go to the spot, and then the Israelites are gone. It's because Elijah, the prophet of God, is hearing from the Lord, and he's saying, hey, they're going to come here. We need to bolt. We need to go out of here. We need to go out of here. So then the Syrian king says, okay, there's somebody that knows our tricks. How, how are they finding out where we're going to go every single time? And they say, it's actually not anybody inside here. It's actually Elijah, the prophet of God, who's telling them. So the king goes, okay, all we need to do is we need to take out Elijah, and then we'll be able to invade and conquer the Israelites. So they find out where he is in this city, and they say, go to him. And the king of Syria is like, let's send everybody. It's a full blitz. Let's go get this guy, and then we'll, that'll take care of our problem. So they go, and they surround the city where Elijah is. That's the context. Let's start. Right, let's pick up the story in verse 15. It says, when the servant of the man of God rose early. So not Elijah. Elijah's the man of God. But when his servant rises early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? So let's stop here for a second. Do your best to put yourself in the shoes of the servant. He's serving Elijah, God's man. He's waking up early in the morning. He's groggy. He's probably wiping his eyes. He goes outside and he sees that they are totally surrounded by this army, by chariots, by horses, by people ready to attack. 
How do you think he feels in this moment where one minute he's asleep, he's warm in his bed, and now in an instant there's impending doom all around him. And he's thinking, there's no way we can get out of this. This is it. This is it. We're, we're done. Have you ever felt that way? And you feel like things are fine. You're warm in your bed. And then all of a sudden, these thoughts start to rush into your mind and your heart. All of a sudden, you wake up and you realize, man, that I had that conversation with that person. I don't know what they're going to say or what they're going to do. And you start thinking about it nonstop and you can't get out of those thoughts. Maybe you're trying to date somebody and you're wondering, are they going to text me back? Are they going to, what? Like, and you just start thinking constantly. You don't want to think that way, but it just floods itself upon you. Maybe you have issues with your kids. I know for us, my wife and I, as we're parenting teenagers, all of a sudden we will literally be in our bed and we'll wake up and go, where are our children? We've got two drivers. We don't, like, where are they? Like, we don't know where they are. And then we can start going to the worst case scenario of why haven't they called? Why haven't they texted? Why aren't they here? And those thoughts start to flood into your mind and your heart. Or maybe it's something financially related. You got that bill in the mail and you're going, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. One minute everything seemed to be fine and then circumstances enter into the equation and you start going, I don't know what to do. What do you do with your anxiety? What do you do with your fears that flood your mind constantly for different reasons? We see what the servant does. He doesn't ignore the reality of the men around him. He goes back to Elijah. And he says, what do we do? Let's pick up the story in verse 16. He said, Elijah said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Verse 17, then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Stop there for a minute. So God, in a moment of grace, he peels back the curtain and allows the servant to see what is actually happening that his presence is with them, that he has a purpose for them, that in the midst of the servant's fear, God allows him to see a glimpse of what he is up to. When you're feeling fear or anxiety, how does the Lord make himself known to you? When you have a friend that fear, has fear and anxiety, do you pray with him or over them like Elijah does. Elijah doesn't try and fix the problem. Elijah doesn't get out the map and strategize, how can we get out of here? What does Elijah do? What is his primary mode of battle? He gets on his knees and he prays. He says, God, would you show my servants what's actually happening? He doesn't invalidate his feelings. He doesn't say, man, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? He doesn't say, just trust God. He says, listen, don't be afraid. And then he prays and asks God to reveal to his servant What's actually going on? For those of us that deal with friends that have anxiety, do we go to prayer and ask God to show them what's really happening? And think about how kind it was for the Lord to open the servant's eyes. The servant is only a minor role in this narrative. Like you could kind of take him out and you wouldn't really need him. 
But I think he's in here for a reason. To help us see how good and gracious God is. Notice that God reveals his presence and power to the servant before he does to the enemy. The Syrians have horses and chariots, but God brings chariots of fire. Whatever your enemy can bring, God can bring something greater. He really can. Now, it doesn't negate the enemy is very real and very scary, but it does override or overshadow that fear or that anxiety that you might have. When God surrounds your enemies with chariots of fire, what do we expect to happen next? If we're just reading this story at face value, if we're watching this story, if Marvel makes this story, what do we expect to happen next? There's an enemy that comes and surrounds Elijah, the man of God, and then we realize there's a bigger army around, God's army that's bigger and greater. We would expect, I think, okay, it's battle time. The bigger army is going to take down the smaller army, and they're going to get rid of them. They're going to get rid of the threat. They're going to neutralize it. It's going to go away. That's not what happens. And often we want God to just take away our anxiety. We want him to take away our fear. Just get rid of it. Get it away. I don't want to deal with it. But that's not what he does. Let's look at the story, verse 18, as we pick it up. It says, when the Syrians came down against them, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elijah. You see Elijah praying there again. Verse 19, and Elijah said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, which at the time was the capital of Israel. So the Israel army was there. Syrians attack, and Elijah prays to the Lord to blind them, to confuse them, to take away their power. And God answers his prayer. Then he leads them to Samaria, and they go down there. And so clearly now this is the time to, to fight. You, you can imagine Elijah, at least I'm, I'm projecting what I'm thinking going on here. Elijah's like, listen, these chariots of fire, me and the servant, we're the only ones that see it. This isn't going to work. They're not going to kill them. So let's blind them and let's bring them back to the camp. And then we're at the camp. Then we'll surround them and then we'll get them. That's kind of how I'm thinking Elijah's thinking. That's not how he's thinking at all. Um, instead, he brings them in. And let's see what happens next. Verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened the eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. You would not strike down those who you have taken captive with the sword and with your bow. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, and he sent them away, they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So what's happening here? Again, Elijah brings them into the city. The, the king is like, should we attack? Should we take them down now? And Elijah goes, no. Why would you attack somebody you've already conquered? Don't attack them, but feed them. Why would God command a feast instead of a punishment for his enemies? And how does this story connect us to the foreshadowing of an arrival of a Messiah in Jesus? God's people were waiting for a Messiah to come and to save them. 
waiting for a mighty God who enters our world with the power to save and to make things right. This God gives grace to people who deserve punishment in this story. And he gives grace to us as we deserve punishment in the story, don't we? This God prepares a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. This God overturns the enemy's mission and brings grace and redemption through it. Do you know that your anxiety can be a stage for God overturning the enemy? In Christ, God takes our sin and our suffering and the enemy's plan and uses it as a stage for our redemption. In his resurrection, he claims the victory. And with his spirit, he enables us to participate in that victory. Do you know that your anxiety can actually become the stage for you to see the Lord's power? Because again, many of us, we, we pray that the Lord would take away our fears. He would take away our anxiety. It's the equivalent of praying for the angel armies to defeat the enemy in that moment. And that's not what happens in the story. But rather than taking it away, he has a plot twist in store that displays his power over it. When you struggle with anxious thoughts and cry to the Lord for help, you can experience God's victory over the enemy's plan. When you choose to not nurture your anxious thoughts in solitude, but instead turn to a friend like the servant does to Elijah and speak truth to you, you're living out that plot twist what it actually means. You're living out God's victorious reign as he uses anxiety to draw you closer to him and deeper into community. So I want to bring up Elizabeth now to kind of share some of her journey, journey through this subject specifically. You can clap for her. She's great. She deserves clapping even though you haven't said anything yet. First of all, Elizabeth, thanks so much for uh, taking the time this morning. Um, we got together this week and just shared. I was getting ready to preach on this, and my wife had just met with you, and she said, hey, you should definitely talk to Elizabeth because she has lots to say about this that I think would be really helpful. Um, and so we got together, and you shared some of your story, and I said, hey, can you share that with all of us? I think it would be massively helpful for us in the midst of the story. So share a little bit about just how long you've been a part of Redemption family. I mean, I know uh, we were even in the back praying, and a lot of the band had not met you, which is crazy to me because you've been here a while and I feel like I'm constantly doing that. You don't know that person. They've been here forever because we have two services and things like that. How long have, have you guys been here with your family? Yeah, we started coming um, actually four years ago this month. Okay, December, yeah. four years ago. Yeah, so you've been a while. Um, share a little bit about um, your journey with anxiety. When did you first really start feeling anxious? Um. I was antiquing in Prescott, very stressful activity with my mom, um, and I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, I started to, it was July 23rd, 2012, and I started to feel chest pains, palpitations, sweating, dizziness, nausea, um, and I would hold on to something, and I, but I was really in terror. Uh, and so we went to we went to a restaurant. I drank some water. Like I was just really trying to figure out what was happening. Um, and then we ended up in emergency. And it and I found out that it was just uh, it was a panic attack, which um, I hadn't had since I was 19. And in 2012, I was no longer 19. <laughs> and so uh, I just I, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that I that that started a acute time of being up at night and crying and having nightmares that I had cancer and. 
Justin was bringing the kids in to say goodbye to me, and um, I was having to prepare speeches, and I kept diagnosing myself with, um, with chronic, I mean, terminal illnesses. <laughs> um, you know, I've had brain tumors, I've had ALS, I've had it all. I've been, um, everything that tingled or was a bump or something unfamiliar, I was, I diagnosed myself as, uh, that I was, I felt like I was just slated for destruction. Yeah. Um, so, and I didn't know why it just started then, and I'm still not entirely sure why it just started then. Yeah. But it felt very real to you, right? Like, even in the midst of your brain, like, like how much was it like, I actually am going to die? Or how much was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to die, but I feel like I'm going to die. Oh, yeah, I was dying. Yeah. I was absolutely dying. And I just, doctors just hadn't found it yet. Yeah. And so I kept going to specialists. And we were on one income, and I was going through hundreds of dollars going to specialists to try to find out. Um, and I would, I would just be in panic all the time um, and braced. I just felt a, a pervading sense of doom all mm. the time. And so um, I would tell Justin, you know, I'm, I'm having a heart attack. I think I'm having a heart attack. Um, and so he would grab my hands, and he would lean in, and he would start to pray. Um, and he would, you know, how are you feeling? A little better. No, I'm having a heart attack. And he's like, I don't think you feel a little better when you, yeah. I don't think prayer does that when you're yeah. having a heart attack. Yeah. And so he's like, I really think it's anxiety. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. wow. Um, so in, even in the midst of that season of your life, um, how have well-meaning Christians with, with, with you involved in the church, because you were involved in the church at that time, um, how have well-meaning Christians tried to help you in that, but said things that were not helpful in that? Yeah, so uh, for me, um, like there's, there's anxiety, and then there's that 18% for whom it is a disorder, and it is clinical, and it is stemming from trauma. And so what, what people who, they may love you, they, they may want the best for you, um, a lot of times we see somebody suffering and really we kick into a fix-it gear, and sometimes it's not actually for them, it's for us, yeah. because we can't tolerate the helpless feeling we have at somebody that we love suffering, and especially suffering with shame, yeah. because we don't see that on them, and we don't want them to feel it. Um, so, so at the time, I was leading worship uh, for our a prior church and uh, when it started, and I felt um, there, I felt okay. We then went to a um, kind of an inner-city biker church uh, where... I was sharing, um, I was having a particularly hard time. My husband was out of town. We'd been called to, I was the, at that time a women's director, and we'd been called to a hospital where one of our women, her brother, had been shot through the neck. And so they had no idea that I was struggling. She asked me to pray, and I thought, all I'm going to be able to pray for you is that you just bear up under God's will. Like, I don't have, I don't have it in me to pray for, for anything. I don't know that God even is listening to me. I don't know that he even likes me. I, you don't know who you're talking to. Like, I'm in this position, but I am not qualified. Um, and so, which then just, and so uh, fortunately, a wonderful man got there. He, he prayed, he claimed everything. I mean, it was, it was an amazing prayer that I was like, wow. Three hours later, in the parking lot of this, hotel, of this um, hospital, he, he uh, had been listening to his wife, which was really frustrating for him. He was really triggered by hearing his wife talk mm. about her anxiety. Mm. Um, and we were having this conversation, and I said something about, uh, we were walking to the cars, and I said something about, you know, it's so hard when you feel like God doesn't like you. Like, if God doesn't like you, uh, there is doom. Like, you, you are messed up. There is doom. Um, and he's, he just... <laughs> a terrible expression and grabbed the three of us by the hand and circled us up and he prayed that I would be able to leave the bull poop of my past at the foot of the cross so I could serve Jesus. And I just stared at his belt buckle the whole time thinking like this is why people hate Christians. 
I don't know what to do right now. And I, when he stopped, I just looked at his wife. I said, is this what happens to you? And she laughed, and he laughed, and I laughed. And then I didn't go back to church for a little bit. <laughs> like, I was just yeah. like, is this really what just... But he had no idea, like yeah. the trauma in my past. Um, he had no idea that I wasn't just feeling anxious. I had a disorder. Like I had been, I was in therapy. I was medicating. I was taking two Xanax just to get through church. And if a person made eye contact with me and I saw them headed my way, I'd be like, I will punch you in the face. Do not. Yeah. It is not the day. Yeah. Um, and so it was just this pervading, but you keep it quiet. You know, you keep it quiet. So, and I love this man. He yeah. meant everything. You know, he right. wanted me to know my worth. And so, and I still love him. We, we laugh, but, um, but yeah, that was yeah, so even him in that moment, is he, he doesn't like the way you're saying. Maybe he feels a little out of control in the moment. So yes. this, is, this is an opportunity for him to grab control, claim what's true, right. which Absolutely. is still true, true. but yes. not having the backstory and really knowing what's going on with you, it was right. not helpful in the moment. Right. Right? Yeah, well, he and, and while I and his wife were talking, he would roll in between us in a wheelchair that he'd found in the hallway. Like, he right. was so palpably uncomfortable. We yeah. probably shouldn't have taken that time, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So tell us a little bit about, because I know some people in, in, in the audience know your story even recently, the last several years, but a lot of, a lot of people in the audience don't. Um, share a little bit about, you, you've mentioned your husband, Justin. Mm -hmm. Share a little bit about what happened uh, a couple of years back with even your anxiety and then what physically happened to Justin. Yeah, so, uh, so I, was, I began my program for clinical mental health through Grand Canyon, um, in 18, and I thought that I should go get into the field and get some experience. So I got a job, um, my first, in 20 years, I'd been at home for 20 years, and my first back in the field was uh, as a case manager for people who've been designated by the state with severe mental illness with co-occurring substance use disorders. And so on my first day at the job, um, I got a call during lunch. I saw that my gym was calling, and clearly I don't need personal training. <laughs> so I swiped that no. And then, um, and then when I got back to my desk, I see that Banner Thunderbird is calling. And so I got on the phone, and the, the woman on the other end introduced me, herself as the case, uh, the social worker there, which I should have known right there. Um, but she, she told me that Justin had collapsed at the gym. And so I'm thinking, okay, all right. Um, and, she, and so she said, I'm going to get the doctor and call you back. Okay, so I told my supervisor, uh, I said, my husband's collapsed at the gym, and she calls back, and I answer, she said, are you on your way? And I'm like, should I be? Like, give him some juice. He's 6'4", yeah. he's huge, he's yeah. strong. Like, does he just feel dizzy? What are you talking about here? But then the doctor got on, and he said that um, he had collapsed, that they had worked on him for about an hour. Um, they had shocked him, they had injected him, um, and they never got more than spazzing. Like, he never, he, he was just gone. So later we found out that he had an aneurysm mm -hmm. on his heart that we didn't know about and he, it had just ruptured and so it was immediate. Yeah. Now how, how long ago was that? That was February 24th of 2020. Yeah. 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 So talk a little bit about your journey with anxiety and even the thing that probably, besides your kids passing away, yeah. maybe the thing that you may have been most anxious about besides yourself, your husband passes away suddenly. How does that and the Lord use your journey with anxiety to what actually happened and how did you even deal with that i mean you were here at the time at redemption peoria yeah um yeah i mean it was tragic it, yeah us. yeah so um first of all like i don't know who here who was here because i didn't know anybody still at that time <laughs> when it happened i wasn't too familiar but like the way the community just rallied and from that moment until the end of may we didn't have dinner that we had to provide for ourselves like 
redemption just, they didn't know us, you know, uh, but they came and, and there's the kids at school and, um, sorry, I just looked at my daughter. <laughs> Darn it, Aubrey. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, uh, we did, okay, um, hang on. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. None. You have to want to change. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. That's All right. Good. Got through it. Okay. We're here. We're back. We're back. That's a, yeah. Who can't do That's this? It. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so thank you all for that. Okay. Um, so what happened is then I'm in this, uh, like this whole new life, like right away. Like I'm a case manager. Justin never met anybody. He never, like he saw the campus, but he never went inside. And so like suddenly I'm a different person and I feel like shock is just a beautiful gift from God, frankly. Mm. And so I was, I was working in shock and I, they gave me 30 days to come back. They would hold the job for 30 days. And so I went back three weeks later and just wanted to like put a bunch of stuff in my brain. I wanted to learn. I wanted to, and so, and I kind of felt honestly a little bit bulletproof. Like, surely God wouldn't do this to them in, you know, like, <laughs> surely I'm bulletproof for a little bit anyway. And so, uh, but I'd always been a fearful person. I'd always had a lot of um, anxious thoughts and worry. Um, but I started to say yes to anything that scared me. And so we got an email around April. We got an email asking for people to be trained in crisis um, assessment in the community and assessing for people who had threatened to hurt themselves or others. And you would go out and because it was COVID, Terrible timing, Justin, but it, so now the whole country is shut down, and so we had to wear full gear and go into their homes and call the police if they were violent and petition them if they wouldn't come with us. And, um, and so I thought, I, so I emailed back and I said, listen, I'm a little scared. I'm sorry. It's taken me two weeks. I'm a little afraid. Could I just shadow somebody on the team? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I, yeah. So, so they let me shadow, and because of social worker turnover, within a month, I'm the primary lead on this thing, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like, I've got my clipboard, and my brother was a, was a former cop, and he's like, what weapons do you have? I'm like, my clipboard. I'm going to smack them into a coma with that thing. If they... But I, so I thought, oh, my goodness. So, um, so and my nickname in the team room was Easy e <laughs> and My nickname on the primary was, was Chicken Little. <laughs> So, but I just started um, saying yes to everything. I, I learned how to ride a motorcycle. I, I did everything that, that before I would have been too afraid. And I think in that time, God used all of that. Like I felt his presence so strongly. Mm. And I feel like he, I felt like he was right there with me and he was protecting me and, and my husband was gone and he was now my protector. And so he used the love of people still, the therapy that I had been in since um, consistently since 2016, um, and then changing my identity slowly as a person who just could not tolerate fear. And so I said yes to everything. Um, and every time, I didn't die. And so, <laughs> um, and so now when that. I feel something, I'm like, nah, you're fine. Nah, you're, I'll probably die because I just don't take it seriously now. Now it's probably going to be me. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, tell us a little bit about the back end of the story as we kind of close our conversation. I want to ask you one more question, but before I do that, uh, you have a ring on your finger now. Um, I do. Because you got married again. I did. Just recently. I did. And so I, I in think that June. story is unbelievable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, in high school, I dated a guy. I was a freshman. He was a senior. Um, very sweet. We dated for two and a half years. We went to prom together twice. The we prom were picture twice. is unbelievable. The prom it's, pictures are it's, adorable. It's great. It is a snapshot of my hair when it was <laughs> amazing. 
So uh, yeah, very, very sweet. And so um, we just say that God couldn't take the drama, so he split us up. And so we hadn't talked in 18 years. Um, I, I, his sister and I were friends on Facebook. So when Justin died, she told him. Um, but I also, from her, I knew that his wife, Jody had been um, diagnosed with cancer in July or in October of 19. So Justin passed away, in, or yes, in February, and Jody ended up passing away in July of 2020, five months apart. Uh, and so in September, Brad just reached out and, and sent me a couple of DMs. I'm not on Facebook very often, so it had, um, they'd sat there a little bit, but he was just saying, I just need, like, I, I don't know, I don't know anybody else that's gone through this, and I, I couldn't reach out, I, I'm so sorry. You know, like, he was caregiving for her. and. So yeah, so we just met and started meeting for tacos uh, while Carson was in youth group and for an hour and a half and um, and so, but you know, y'all, he was so cute. So, <laughs> so yeah, so we, we yeah. just uh, started or started it talking about grief and then have walked together. We both miss our spouses. You know, we talk about them daily. You know, we just we we have been able to encourage each other and we still grieve, but we grieve together. So, yeah. yeah, and he loves Jesus. He leads worship at a different church. So yes, that's he'll why be here for usually... second service, but he is leading. Yeah, he's led worship at his church for over 20 yeah. years. You were both like, I'm not leaving my church. Right, no. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, give us one last piece as we kind of close our conversation about um, what would you tell all of us with this issue of anxiety, uh, whether we're dealing with it personally or we know people that are dealing with it. How can we be helpful in the conversation? Yeah, um, so... I would say try to listen, just try to listen. Um, is this normal anxiety? Is this shame? Um, just be there. And, and, you know, for years I would read the scripture as be anxious for nothing, but in all things give thanks, caps, rage, exclamation marks. Um, and I now hear it, be anxious for nothing, but in all things give thanks. It's so much more gentle. And so like, the truth of scripture is unchanging and God makes it so. So, so it is, the truth is there and, and we know it. And those of us who have been Christians for very long and struggled with anxiety, like I have all the verses highlighted and annotated and they're probably the original Greek somewhere out in the middle. And I've got the podcast and I've got the book. Please don't give me homework to read that book because I'm probably not going to get through it. Um, and so, so just to don't tell me you love me, love me so that I can see God through you. Don't, don't tell me um, it's going to be okay. Just be okay. Don't tell me that God is patient. Be patient with me so I can see God through you. Um, so for some of us who are dealing with, with anxiety brought about by shame, we just believe that God doesn't like us. Because you've heard parents say, like, I love that kid, but I can't spend more than two minutes with him. I don't like him. And I thought that's who I was to God. And so to to be liked, so well-supported, so well-loved, so well-liked by people, that has been how God's voice got through to me as the therapy was working, as the medications were working, as my identity was changing. God has been there. I see now where he has been there right next to me all the time. But, but you can't fix them. Just love them. Just yeah. love them. Yeah, that's so good. Thanks so much for sharing your story. It's an unbelievable story. Um, I think anytime you have people that have had a little hope in their journey with whatever we're dealing with, it gives us hope. So having the hope in your journey, hopefully for people that are dealing with anxiety and fear, can see that God can redeem all things, even in the midst of it. Um, and that also is, is, gives us some tools for how do we love other people that are dealing with this around us. And uh, 
you are just a gift to our community. We love you. We love your family and your, your kids. And um, thanks for taking the time. Would you guys give Elizabeth a hand? I hope that was uh, a helpful conversation. Don't bombard Elizabeth, um, <laughs> but I'm sure you can talk to her at some point um, uh, as we continue to journey together as a family. Um, let me just kind of wrap up kind of like, what do we do with this? Uh, from the text that we read and, and looked at and peeked at and from the conversation with Elizabeth, um, I think for all of us, it's asking the Lord to open our eyes to what he is doing and that he's actually near. Just like the servant comes in, freaked out, going, what? Lord, what are you doing? And Elijah says, don't be afraid. He's here. Open his eyes that we would have a posture of prayer and care, even in the midst of how we're feeling and not sure how we're feeling, that, that I've seen that people either do one of two things in extremes with their feeling. They either totally ignore their feelings, feelings don't matter, it doesn't matter, and they just ignore them, or they swing way over here and they only listen to their feelings, and there has to be a tension in the middle somewhere. That's how the Bible speaks, that our feelings point us to something deeper. They don't drive us ultimately. They're not the ultimate truth. God's word is and God is, but they are indicators for something going on under the surface that we should pay attention to and ask God, what are you doing? How do I need to pay attention to this feeling that's going on inside of me? And then getting around community that loves you, that is listening to you, that is patient with you for hope and healing and transformation in this conversation. To ask the Lord to open your eyes to what he is doing. Let's look at one more quote from Ed Welch as we close. It says, In the scriptures, there are two recurring themes that can help us fight fear and anxiety. First and most important, the Lord is near. Though we might feel like we are alone and that God is far away, it's not true. He is with us always. Reminders of this are found throughout the Bible. Do not be afraid or terrified for the Lord. God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The challenge is to believe these words are true. How does the arrival of Jesus coming to earth bring us near to God? We sing and we sing about Emmanuel. God is with us. That's what it means. He comes in flesh to sit with us, to be with us, to hurt with us, to help us heal. And then he gives us his spirit that lives inside of us. If you're a Christian, that is closer than your breath. He's with you. He's with you in the midst of all your fear, all your anxiety. He's with you. And we need to be reminded of that. And as we're reminded of that, we're going to be reminded through communion this morning as we respond, as we come and we take the bread, which is his body given for us, and we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. It should be a tangible, tactile reminder that he is with us, that he gave his son to be near to us. So we're going to do that now as we respond. We respond in a couple of different ways here at Redemption Pure. We're going to sing a couple of more songs, and I just pray if you're dealing with fear and anxiety, you would really lean into what we are singing. Even if you don't believe it to be true, you would sing it anyway, and by singing it, God would change your heart and your mind for it to be true. So we're going to sing. 
We're going to spend some time praying. I would encourage you to pray with people that you're with, whether you deal with anxiety or fear. There's things you can write down and you can put them in our prayer space on the side that we would engage prayer just like Elijah does. That is his mode of battle with the enemy, is prayer. That we would pray, that we would be dependent, that that would be our posture in the midst of this conversation. We're going to give in the midst of our response. And this is for people that call Redemption Peoria their family. There's a box in the back you can give online that you would give cheerfully and sacrificially. And then we're going to take communion, as I just mentioned. Being reminded that God is near, what Jesus has done is made a way for us to get back to God because of his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And we can be drawn near to him because of that sacrifice. And that's why we take communion, to remember and reset where we get our worth and that God is near. So would you stand with me? We'll pray one more time. If you're new here, we'll do this time very organically. Just at some point, you can come down if you're a believer in Jesus and take the bread. It'll be handed to you. Just receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You just receive it. That's an intentional play on our part. And then dip it in the juice. And you can take it here. You can take it back in the room. You can take it in the prayer space. You can take it with your family and pray however you feel led. Let me pray and then we will respond. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for Elizabeth's story. Thanks for the story of Elijah and his servant. I pray that you would help us see clearly our reality. We often do not. We just see the things that are in front of us. Help us by the power of your spirit see what's really going on. Comfort us and be near to us. Give us peace with ourselves. We pray in your name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, we'll sing. You can come and receive communion.